Welcome to the Ready to Run podcast. I'm your co-host, Efren Kabalius, and I'm a sports medicine physician. I'm your co-host, Kurt Roser, and I'm a physical therapist. We're based out of the Boulder, Colorado area and have a passion for working with endurance athletes of all abilities. The goal of our podcast is to engage in thoughtful discussions with athletes, coaches, and clinicians to share knowledge within the field of sports medicine and inspire progression in the sport of running. We hope to empower individuals to navigate injuries, reduce injury risk, optimize training and performance, and provide listeners with the tools needed to get ready to run. You'll be able to listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe and leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear on the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at Ready to Run Podcast, as well as our website, readytorunpodcast.com. All right. So this is going to be a fun one. A uh, very common topic that we see frequently in both of our clinics. We're going to talk about Achilles tendinopathy. And in today's downweek episode, we'll keep keep our focus uh, primarily on the rehab, just because this is a pretty broad topic and we're hoping to highlight this in a future discussion more comprehensively, but focusing particularly today on the on the rehab setting of this. Um, and for, for conversational purposes, um, you know, there's two types of Achilles tendinopathy. Very broadly, you have your mid-portion, which is your most common type, which is a, about six to eight um, centimeters up from the insertion of the of the Achilles. Um, that's where we're focused today's discussion on. Um, we'll save a discussion on insertional Achilles tendinopathy uh, for a later for a later discussion. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, and these are um, pretty, you know, obviously, like you said, very common and can be very tricky to treat um, and can be a long time away from run, running and um, in some cases career ending for people, unfortunately. And I think uh, we, with some of the information that we know now, like it doesn't have to be that way. Like they're still, still going to take a while to recover from, but I think the research and what we know is like moving in such a good direction that these injuries should be managed more predictably, hopefully in the, in the future. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Um, yeah, maybe let's get started and, uh, you could let us know kind of like, you know, what do we, where do we start? Like when someone comes into the, to the clinic with, uh, an Achilles problem, what's the kind of first thing you look at, uh, when you see him in your office? Yeah, I guess for me and, um, you know, obviously history and physical exam and maybe, maybe you can touch, uh, uh, more more in depth on the exam portion, but um, for me, one of the most critical things is determining the stage stage of tendinopathy. Um, and we have the luxury of having an ultrasound in our office, so we can get a pretty rapid diagnosis. But um, basically, I like to divide these into uh, one of two things: either reactive tendinopathy or degenerative tendinopathy. So, thinking of reactive, this is kind of your younger um, your younger patient, mid twenties or so, um, who has a rapid increase in training load or volume and, um, presents very acutely with, um, pain and swelling in the Achilles. And you can see that on ultrasound, um, cause you can look at a, basically you'll see the tendon and, um, tendons under ultrasound generally have a dense, bright, white, compact, linear appearance, um, made up of collagen fibers. So that's what you'll typically see in a normal, healthy tendon. And in a reactive tendon, you'll actually see some swelling surrounding the entirety of the tendon. And um, if you have a power Doppler on your ultrasound machine, you can actually see 
areas of uh, neovascularity. So the, that area of pain will light up kind of like a Christmas tree on, under ultrasound. Um, and this is very different than the degenerative tendinopathy, which is more your um, kind of older patients, uh, 40s and above, who probably has has had this before, has recurring bouts of this and presents. And um, there you'll typically see more of your chronic degenerative changes on the Achilles, where there's disorganized tissue, tendons very thick, you can see some scarring and it just kind of behaves like a very grumbly tendon where um, they're having constant, constant bouts of pain and adaptation. So that's the first thing I look is working out the stage and that way I can communicate to like the physical therapy to help determine what's the best thing. Is this, is this something we should initially unload or do we add load? Cause I think if you have like a younger patient when you're reactive tendinopathy and your first instinct is to add load with eccentric loading or whatever various type of load you have, you can actually make this patient worse very acutely. Mm -hmm. Been there. Um, but yeah, that that's always great information to have as the PT because uh, it, it helps us like manage those first couple of weeks, I think, more successfully and get a good long-term um, progression. So if we start with like our, our example of a uh, younger um, patient in maybe their mid-20s, post-collegiate runner, let's say, and one thing that I always like to know is like that they don't have any signs of uh, degenerative changes, um, on, on the scan coming back from you. And, uh, I always think that's a, you know, really positive prognosis. Um, even though I think that in the literature, I don't, I don't know if they've decided if that is a particularly, um, positive thing, like, or people that have degenerative changes also heal at similar rates. So it's not necessarily maybe that big of a deal, but um, I'm just more confident that that person's going to respond to an initial period of relative unloading and then getting them stronger in their calf complex and Achilles over time while we work on some, you know, some other uh, factors that they might need help in. And uh, I guess it, it seems to me that like most people don't need complete rest from running, but uh, I know that's occasionally, um, occasionally warranted, but yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Like, should, um, if someone's having, um, acute Achilles pain, do they need to rest or like, how do we decide if they, uh, if they need complete rest? Yeah. I think if they have the ability to run, um, pain-free, it's fairly sensible, um, to, to, to that as, as soon as you can. Um, but if, if they're, if they're unable to work through that, then yeah, I might, uh, especially in the reactive, um, phase, tend to um, encourage an initial period of rest until the symptoms settle. Um, but I think it's always good to keep some sort of movement. Um, you know, I, I might temporarily use like um, things like ice and anti-inflammatories, although I'm not a huge proponent of anti-inflammatories. But um, if we can at least get them moving like isometrically, isometric calf raises in that reactive stage, um, so an isometric where they're just kind of standing slowly, pushing up on their toes and holding that position for whatever duration of time, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, that at least can help keep their, keep their tendon responsive to load in a manner that doesn't uh, exacerbate it. But also um, there's some, I guess some, some theory that asymmetrics also can help with um, uh, pain control through corticospinal inhibition. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's some uh, pretty good research on the 
the pain effects of isometric holds, which are great. And then also it's a good way to put some load into the Achilles and in theory, stimulate a little bit of, um, you know, that starting the healing process in people that aren't able to run because of pain. I'll, um, sometimes have them do the isometrics multiple times per day, since that person's probably used to being quite active and now they're not quite active. So I think in that case, it's, it's helpful to do, um, the isometric holds, maybe, you know, four sets of 30 to 45 seconds, three times a day, um, for that person, if they're not able to run. And then as soon as, you know, walking is pain-free, I'll, uh, I'll try to get them back to a little bit of slow, flat running using the pain monitoring model to kind of decide like, um, you know, is this a good idea and, and how it's responding and tolerating that increased running load. Um, and that is, kind of, it seems so simple, but I find that I, um, I have trouble like teaching that effectively to everyone because every once in a while, um, I, you know, we find out that, uh, someone's, you know, been maybe running through a little bit too much pain or on the other end of the spectrum is maybe very fearful of any pain. So, um, I think it's, it's hard to get your know get to know your patient and kind of what they're, um, experiences and what their fear might be. And, and also, um, you know, kind of dig into, uh, yeah, like just kind of learning like how they're, um, handling, uh, coming back from the injury. Cause we don't want to find out like, you know, six weeks later, things aren't going in a good direction because someone's either, uh, fearful of, of any discomfort in the tendon, which we know is probably going to happen or that they've been maybe pushing through a little bit more than t- would be ideal for them. So I think it's a hard kind of line to cross. Yeah. The load management, um, that's very, very key part. And, um, I guess part of it, part of the conversation depends on, you know, how, how long have the symptoms really been going on? Um, if it's mm-hmm. something that, you know, um, really just appeared very acutely, um, then that might change how I'd recommend the return to run versus someone who's maybe had this something brewing for, a few weeks and then, um, and then finally just kind of tipped the balance and then presented with a swollen Achilles. Yeah. And also digging into their kind of like acute and chronic workload ratios and finding out like, what's, what's this person's training history in the past few years and, you know, how quickly should they get back to, you know, a certain level in terms of volume or intensity. Um, so I think, yeah, really getting to know your, your patient and, um, maybe what, what led to this, um, so that they can have that informi- information to, av- you know, avoid it. And it could be a simple kind of, kind of no brainer. Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, I started doing uh, really fast hill sprints and working out in spikes, getting ready for racing the mile. Um, and then sometimes it's a lot, a lot more, uh, kind of gray and doesn't quite make sense why this tendon, um, flared up at a certain point in their training cycle. But, um, yeah, definitely get to know their training habits and that'll help you kind of with the load management piece, because, uh, I I do feel like that's probably the most important part is kind of figuring out like what the next, you know, six to 12 weeks is going to look like so that we can be setting expectations and, um, kind of have a reasonable timeline plus or minus a certain number of weeks on the faster end or slower end that they should expect to get back to, you know, um, a fairly normal amount of, of running. And, uh, that way they're on board with that rehab process. And so we talked about isometrics, which, um, I really like for people. And, um, 
a lot of runners tend to like them because I think they're not very um, scary. You know, they seem like a safe thing that's not going to bother their tendon. And then as soon as we can, I like to transition people to just a a regular um, heavy, slow resistance calf raise, um, maybe starting to the ground first for a week or or so, and then eventually dropping into some uh, dorsiflexion. And uh, the easiest way is just, you know, standing with um, some weight in your hand or or weight in a backpack or vest, uh, slowly lowering your your heel off of a step once you get to that point, or um, have a seated soleus machine in the clinic that um, I really like for people to use because it uh, is just a easy way to really target the soleus muscle, which is our um, primary like vertical force generator in running out of all of our other muscle groups and uh, responsible for a a lot of the um, force that we require in running, especially the faster and faster you go. So yeah, those are are two great uh, starting points. And the, um, the, the research is, you know, either three sets of 15 is, has been studied a lot. And then I think um, we like to transition towards more like a four set um, with six to six to eight reps is kind of where I want people to be at towards the end stage of, of rehab once they've been working on strengthening for a while. Yeah. And I think, um, to that point, I think that the progression for sure, I think is one of the key, key aspects of this. Uh, I frequently um, have patients who maybe they're six weeks or so into their rehab course or whatnot. And, um, you know, they're doing their three sets of 15, every other day. And, um, but it's been, been a body weight for six weeks, mm-hmm. but, um, one of the pitfalls there is that it doesn't really allow for the, for the tendon to really build up that, that capacity to, to withstand, um, kind of the stress, stress of running. And, um, one of the, one of the goals, I think, uh, when we're sending someone for strengthening is, is primarily to yes, increase the tissue capacity to withstand the shearing forces, um, but then also train them to in- improve their peak loads because um, they already sustain a lot of cumulative load with their running, and they're going to get that once they return to running. But it's 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 training that peak load to withstand kind of the higher forces, so that they're more um, more capable of of handling the, the the loads of running. Yeah, no, that's I I love to explain it that way. Um, also, knowing that um, running every step you're putting what three to 12 and a half percent or times your body weight, um, depending on who's measuring and how measuring, but I've seen anywhere. Yeah. Three to 12.5 times your body weight is going through your Achilles with each step of, you know, every step for miles and miles. So like, I think it's important to frame it that way. And then like, if we're doing that, um, for, you know, 10 miles or 20 miles or however far, and then we're scared to add weight to a standing calf raise. Um, I think it helps put it in context for, for folks. Yeah. And, um, you know, I guess, I guess since we're on the topic, I guess going through the different types of, uh, rehabilitation strategies in terms of loading strategies, um, you know, traditionally, I think we're all taught, at least when I, when I was in school was on eccentric loading. So the classic Alfredson, study from, I think it was like 1998 or something like mm-hmm. that, or mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, uh, where he had them doing um, heel drops first with a straight knee to hit that 
gastroc complex and with a bent knee to um, target the soleus, basically, you know, come up on your tiptoes, slowly lower down over the course of about three seconds uh, on a staircase um, and doing about three sets of 15 repetitions. And um, I think their initial protocol was like twice a day over over the course of 12 weeks. At least that's how yes. it was laid out in the study. Um, but um, as we, I think we, at least, I don't know what you've seen, but I know over the years I've learned that doesn't quite work for everybody. Yeah. I think um, the biggest thing that uh, I've seen where people have are familiar with eccentrics or the Alfredson protocol, or um, you, know, you still get a script written for the Alfredson protocol, um, which is uh, I think good, but um but yeah, the, there's been a few studies that have shown that um, regular heavy slow resistance training is as effective as the eccentric uh, program when they like compared the two. Um, and you're doing that, you know, three days a week versus uh, two or three times a day. So the like the amount of time, if you actually calculate the full eccentric Alfredson protocol, is like some crazy amount of hours per week or something, um, and patient satisfaction was a lot higher in the heavy, slow resistance training group. So that's pretty much what I tell people to, to use, unless they have a strong preference for some reason for eccentrics, which is fine. But, uh, yeah, the idea, um, like you touched on earlier is like, um, tendons adapt really well to high forces, but they get bored quickly, so to speak. So they get saturated and they don't adapt past the first, um, 40 or so repetitions, I believe. I think some of that's taken from the bone literature, but basically like, um, if we're going to do something high intensity, heavy lifting a couple times a week, that's the best thing that our tendons can adapt to. So we want to, in our rehab process, be transitioning towards that in terms of, um, in terms of the, the weight. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I tell people in the path that I lay out is, like as, as we can tolerate it, we want to go a little bit heavier so that we get your tendon a bit more robust and able to handle the capacity of running, um, at the speeds and distances and volume that you want. Um, and with a lot of runners, like, especially if they're running a lot, like they don't need more repetition, you know? Um, so we don't, uh, we don't, we're not trying to do more work or make it harder and fatigue them. We're trying to, um, dose the tendon and, um, find that kind of Minim, minimal effective dose of like, how do we get this result of increasing the capacity without, um, adverse effects or, um, irritating the tendon farther with, with more reps. Yeah. I know personally, um, I, I've leaned, leaned more towards heavy, heavy resistance training, um, over the years. Um, just, I like it for a lot of reasons. Like some of the things you mentioned, like the, the, the time, the time that it takes to do it. Uh, number one, but also that effect that it combines some eccentric and concentric loading as well. Um, so it's not just hitting one type of load. And uh, the initial, I know the initial study um, was done by uh, Kongsgaard, and then there's another study by Bayer. And like they give different examples. So if, if, if you've never done this, like seated calf raises is the one that I love the most, uh, just because it's very well controlled and it primarily works you through the plantar flexion range of motion. And um, you can use it for either a mid portion or an insertional case tendinopathy because uh, you're not worried about having to go into excessive amounts of uh, dorsiflexion, which may irritate the Achilles. Um, another way to do it is like a seated heel raise on a leg press machine. Uh, if you have access to that or a standing calf raises um, with a barbell. So I love that you can slice it in multiple different ways. 
mm-hmm. and um, increase it over time. Now, one question I have, I guess, from a practical application, um, I know the, in the initial studies, they have you start out as like three sets of like 15 repetitions. And then over the course of 12 weeks, work towards like you were saying, like four sets of six or some something of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. And their end target range in the and the the two studies that we were talking about was about seventy to eighty five percent of their one repetition maximum. Mm-hmm. I find with runners because we're not used to like lifting heavy things. Most people don't know necessarily know what that means. So I guess how do, how do you like assess that or target that or like and yeah, yeah, that's hard. It depends on what equipment you have available to you. Um, and uh, I've heard it described uh, different ways of. Uh, you know, trying to calculate someone's peak ankle plantar flexion force that they put out with a handheld dynamometer or some set of setup like that. And I think that's great. That'd be cool to track. Um, I don't have one of those. And I also think that it maybe isn't that important. Like we, we don't really care that much how strong the calf gets. Like most people that come in are, you know, fairly reasonably strong. Um, but, uh, so what I'll do in the clinic is day one, ask them to try to do 30, um, single leg, uh, calf raises just to the ground or, um, it off of a step sometimes, depending on, um, if they said they have some experience with that. And so I'll, that'll be kind of a, uh, initial gross, you know, um, test of like, you know, their, um, how irritable the tendon is. And then also like, you know, can they knock that out pretty easily uh, without losing speed and, and whatnot throughout the range of motion. Um, so if somebody can do that pretty easily, doesn't evaporate their pain. I'll have them, uh, kind of do like an estimation of 10 rep max on the seated soleus machine that I have. So that way I can kind of get an idea of like, you know, how much weight they are starting at on that uh, machine. And then we'll kind of like see that progress over time. Um, you could do the same thing with a Smith machine or with a barbell, um, but just whatever way that person is going to be strengthening, um, I would say like try to figure out like kind of their 10 rep max. And from there, um, I think that's a reasonable number of reps to estimate your one rep max off of if you wanted to do that. And also like, I don't think it's really that helpful maybe to get um, uh true one rep max, um, in the, in the clinic, like, cause most people are having pain. So that might be a little aggressive. Um, but to, to back to your original question, um, I use reps in reserve, um, as the way that I'm training someone to, uh, know how much weight they should be using. So you want maybe two or three reps in reserve. And that means that for every set of that exercise, you should finish and it should be getting hard but you should be able to do two or maybe three reps more if you had to, like in a competitive situation. Um, and then as you go, as you go heavier, maybe that's only one or two reps in reserve. Um, and there's some nice charts, um, that kind of correlate. um, like two or three reps is like 75 or 80% of your one rep max. Um, and I think that's, those have been like validated a number of times. So, yeah. So I think the reps in reserve is, is a really great way to kind of teach people like, you know, how, heavy you should lift and then how it could should kind of feel because we also don't want people going to failure really um because going to failure is going to not get that much more benefit for the tendon but it's gonna um really fatigue their calf and then they're gonna say like oh my calf was sore 
for my run or, you know, whatever, if they're running a bit. So, um, yeah, yeah. no, I, I like the way you broke that down. So it's, it's easier to digest and kind of more practical. Um, sometimes when you sift through the data, it could be hard to, to replicate that, um, in a clinical setting for sure. Um, yeah. And totally like in PT clinics, you'll see a variety of things that people have access to. And then you also got to ask, ask your, um, your person that you're working with, like, what do you have access to? Like, are you going to be doing this at home with weight in a backpack or do you have access to uh, a gym with whatever you want? Um, so yeah, it totally depends how they're going to be training as well. Um, yeah. So we, what other um, types of things in do you see that are seem to be helpful in terms of, so we're definitely going to strengthen the calf complex and load the Achilles. Um, but yeah, what other types of exercises um, or exercise categories do you find to be particularly you know helpful for, for these folks? Yeah. So I think, I think just uh, two more things um, um, to, to, to focus on. I think the, the, the first one is another type of um, tendon modality. Um, it's called tendon neuroplastic training. Um, this is from Ebony Rio's research where um, she actually studied this in patella tendons. So it's really hard to say, is it truly applicable for other types of tendons? But the general pr principle is that um, it's, it's strength alone um, is not really sufficient um, for performing a task that you also need good stability. So um, having, you know, having the ability to control the movement and then having good strength to um, power that movement um, are what allows you to complete a task and then what hence uh, improves your tendon function and reduces your injury risk. And the, and the, the concept basically focuses on a uh, something called motor control, which I know um, you and I both love talking about. Yeah. Yeah. But basically you know, there's changes with tendinopathies. There's a lot of changes in the uh, motor control of the muscle um, connected to a dysfunctional tendon. So like basically even when your pain is improved, even when your strength is improved, um, there's still some adaptations in the uh, cortical spinal uh, excitability and inhibition that um, that can that can play a role into a dysfunctional tendon, or really more importantly, the um, the risk of re-injury. So this is your patient is like, I did my calf raises, I did my rehab, um, but then they're coming back to you on re repeated bouts of cycles um, for the same injury, and it's, it can be quite frustrating because they're they're like, man, I did my homework, why am I why am I not getting good grades here? Um, mm -hmm. It's, um, I, I could kind of give the example of like motor control, thinking of it like, uh, like a dr driving manual. Um, so, you know, if you're someone who doesn't have good control as you shift from like second gear to fourth gear, it can feel a bit jerky and uh, that movement is still uncontrolled, um, versus like someone who, who has good motor control, um, can shift gears very smoothly and you know, adapt through different, different stresses and loads. Um, so that's why I think about it. Um, and the, the practical example is like taking any of your loading exercises, let's, let's go back to like a eccentric load off of a staircase and you just go, you work through different ranges of motion. Um, and, um, but it's with an external, um, cue, like a metronome basically, um, mm -hmm. set at 30 to 40 beats per minute, such that you're moving in coordination, um, with the time of the metronome, as well as having the strength to complete the task. Yeah. And I think that works really well. Um, also for, kind of starting to tr transition towards um, like uh, plyometrics eventually and kind of getting that person to uh, work on their stretch shortening cycle a bit where um, we're moving away from just like um, that, those slow contractions to um, firing quickly and um, contracting the muscle 
quickly to, um, you know, pull on the tendon, which is going to, um, get, get the weight moving in the opposite direction. So yeah, I like to use it for some of the exercises that I'll program. And one of the things that I think has worked well is if you do like one of each. So if you do like whatever you're able to like really load up quite a bit, um, whether that's, um, with a barbell or the seated calf raise machine, and then you could do like a, a standing uh, front foot elevated version to the metronome um, just for some variety and um, a little bit different way to work the calf. So um, those are also the folks that I've used this um, the this technique with because people just start, start to get bored with doing the same, you know, calf raise or whatever exercise they're doing. And so having like a little bit of variability is maybe nice too. Runners like to do more than just pick things up and put things down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like, um, yeah, I think it does segue nice into a little bit of hopping, which, um, yeah, I'm, I'll be honest. I'm a little, I'm pretty gun, gun shy about plyometrics, uh, just cause my experiences as, as a runner, I haven't done much ever. And so I am bad at them. Um, and then I'm also, um, yeah, like nervous of like blowing people up with them. So I tend to be pretty conservative with those and I want people to have done, um, you know, like at least four to six weeks of some decent strengthening or, or at least be strong enough that I'm confident that I can, they can handle the hopping. Um, and I know other people are, are more into earlier plyometrics, which I certainly think works for some people, but that's just kind of my personal thing is I'm a little bit slower to start with plyos. Um, but I do think they have a, a good place as someone's getting back into running or maybe they're doing easy running, but they aren't doing fast running. So getting them doing some pogo hops and single leg pogo hops is uh, um, a really good uh, place to start. Yeah, definitely. I think this goes back to the original point of like understanding the stage of tendinopathy um, to begin with. So like knowing what we're treating before we start treating it is really helpful because then, yeah, because um, then we'll initially unload them as we described and then uh, the purpose of like building up those, um, you know, four to six weeks or even longer for some people, um, is to get that muscle recruitment and, um, just to build, to build that base of support around the tendon. Um, cause really structurally you don't see a tendon adaptations occurring until about 12 weeks or so down the road anyway. Um, um, if you look at these on a molecular level, so a lot of times if, if someone's been dealing with an injury for weeks to months and, um, you light them up with plyometrics early on, it's going to be a frustrating process, but if you kind of take your time as you're mentioning, then we have a little more confidence that we can introduce that. And the thing is with plyometrics, it's like, it's such a dose, dose for sure matters. And it's like, try and try not to do these more than once or twice per week for like one to two minutes at a time, just because they, they can really be sensitive to load. Um, but um, definitely, um, definitely like love incorporating that later, later in the course, but then also knowing to wean them out once they, once they have started to return to their regular running, because you don't want to keep them, keep them at that high peak load for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree that as well to me, and I could be wrong here, but to me, the plyometrics are kind of like pass fail. Like once you are good enough at some of the basic ones to re like start your normal training, um, program, I think you get enough of it by doing faster running and workouts and hill repeats and, um, some of the, the normal kind of running drills that you're hopefully doing a couple times per week. Um, and if people aren't doing running drills then I'll kind of have them transition to doing some of the running drills at all, like, or maybe they do keep in 
yes, some uh, some more advanced polymetrics like around their lift that hopefully we're graduating them to by the time they're done with PT, a nice uh, lift two or three times a week and and having a few plyometrics in there is a good, yeah, a good part of that routine. Yeah. And I guess then to just kind of wrap things up and kind of bring a full circle here is, um, we talked a lot about strength and, um, building up, um, tolerance to load, but also stability, I think is a big piece of this, um, you know, restoring that four foot stability, um, uh, and going back to that, like the ability to control heavy loads. Um, and I guess from a PT standpoint, this is always interesting. I always want to know, like, do you, work on the stability first before you load do you load a little bit then introduce stability like what's the right time to do it then how do you do it yeah i think definitely uh concurrently um i want to as soon as possible like start getting load through the tendon and then depending on what someone's foot type is like um how flexible they are through their forefoot and midfoot um and just basically how how good they are already. Like there's some people that come in and like, it's not really a problem for them. So I'll have them incorporate some maybe more advanced balance exercises or get them, get them straight up on the MOBA board. Um, but if somebody is, uh, really doesn't have any control of their forefoot, we'll start with, you know, short foot, um, some of the, some of the things like that at a very basic level, and then start to build that up as well. Um, and I think it's probably more important for those people if they're if they're not good at it, then we need to get them a stable, um, you know, foot to push off of in those terminal stages of gait. And then the other end of the spectrum is maybe someone that has a, a very, you know, rigid foot or um, maybe a forefoot varus or something like that. And then we're kind of going to work more on on mobility of the forefoot. And um, and uh, once they get that, then making sure that they can get their first ray down to the under the ground so they're going to be using their big toe so yeah i guess it depends <laughs> but uh, yeah <laughs> but it's definitely important and um i think that's why you know that's there's a lot of things that you can do exercise wise and um i think most of it's good stuff you know but there's like hundreds of things that you could do for an achilles problem but i think it's that's why you know you, you want to get the opinion of somebody that knows their stuff to kind of guide you and and uh let you focus on the things that are going to be best suited for you because otherwise you could literally spend like hours a day um, and you'd probably be wasting, you know, 90% of that time. Um, but uh, yeah, anyways, shameless plug. You can't just watch YouTube videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now these are definitely complex and um, yeah, just to kind of summarize and simplify, um, I just like to really just break these down into, into, into three simple simple things of your mobility, um, stability, and then strength. So, you know, when we're assessing that mobility, um, obviously looking through ankle dorsiflexion, um, movement through the first ray, first MTP joint, um, quick manual exam, um, stability. Um, uh, one of my quick, easy ways is to have them do something called toe yoga in the clinic. So, um, li basically lifting up your big toe, keeping the other four toes down, and then pushing down your big toe, lifting the other four toes up and alternating that movement over the course of a minute. And you'll find that you can uncover a lot of issues with that. Um, and then finally um, doing a strength assessment, having them do like, you know, 20, 20 calf raises, not only looking at their ability to do it, but also the quality of movement and when, when their arch collapses as you do it. And then that'll really kind of dictate kind of what your starting point is. And then you have the, 
um, the additional information with your ultrasound exam to stage your tendinopathy and then, you know, a boatload of exercises for the Achilles to yeah. work with your physical therapist. Yeah. I, if I, one objective, um, semi-objective thing that I always look at is a, a single leg mini squat off of like a four inch step. I feel like that gives me a lot of information about their uh, control at the pelvis and trunk also at the ankle and forefoot. And then also you can kind of look at, you know, how they're, what strategy are they using to squat down to the floor? Are they using uh, a lot of ankle, a lot of knee, a lot of hip? Um, so I feel like that kind of leads me into other, um, other tests and measures. Um, but that's one that I always look at with people. And, and sometimes you're like, wow, that's, that looks perfect. We'll, um, we'll move on. And then some people are like, well, how are you running uh, 80 miles a week? And when you can't stand on one foot and tap your heel off of a, you know, a very small step. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> there's a wide variety of presentations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe to finish on a, um, uplifting note about people that we do see some of the kind of de- degenerative changes in the tendon. Uh, maybe they've been a long-term runner, uh, a long time runner, and, uh, they've had some tendon pain off and on over the years, but like, um, but yeah, what are we, um, what should we do just briefly, like differently for those folks and how, what should we be telling them about, about their long-term prognosis if they do have a little degenerative changes in the tendon? Yeah, I think, I think the, the main difference is going to be, um, how, how you, how you initiate your treatment. Um, yeah, uh, just because the, these, these patients um, tend to have more repeated bouts of things. And so I, I like to load them early, um, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to the reactive tendon where, um, I like to offload them early. Now that the exception to that is you can also have a reactive on degenerative tendinopathy. So that, that again is where your imaging modalities are quite helpful, but, uh, but assuming it's just a pure degenerative tendinopathy, a grumbly tendon, I like to load them early and, um, and, and often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And, um, you know, keep, keep them running at the level they can. And then I think, um, the, some of the literature, we now know that like a, there's a very high false positive rate of degenerative changes in tendons. So a lot of people have degenerative tendons that don't have pain. Um, and it's not necessarily predictive of, um, future tendon pain. Um, we also know that people get better even if the imaging doesn't improve, right? So people regain their function, even if the the amount of degenerative tendon doesn't get better um, so that we can compensate for that um, kind of missing chunk of tendon that's not working very well with the rest of our tendon. So, um, so I always like to reassure people that like, you know, yeah, this doesn't look great, but you're still going to be able to do everything that you want to do within reason. Maybe we do have to moderate some expectations if people are um, wanting to continue to run super high mileage as a master's and we have to say like that there's a better way, you know? Um, so yeah. sometimes there are some hard lessons, but um, but overall, I think that even if we do have a case where there's some degenerative changes, like that person is probably going to be able to do quite a bit of running and and compete. And, um, there's, yeah, not that much worse of a prognosis, um, mm. really for them. Yeah. And I like to establish that off the bat. Um, when I, you know, when I, when I'm discussing why am I doing this imaging modality, it's not, it's not, it's not to, 
um, necessarily look, you know, look for tears and, um, you know, kind of create some fear mongering, I guess, with regards to tears, uh, because, because if you look at like the Sean docking literature and then some other literature, um, there, as you said, whether the tent, whether the symptoms improve, um, the tendon may, may or may not look any different. Um, and I've tracked, you know, tracked these over time in patients who I've either done no intervention, well, I shouldn't say no intervention, physical therapy alone, or patients where I've done PRP and then reassess them later. Um, and sometimes it looks better, sometimes it doesn't, but um, it doesn't necessarily correlate. And you don't have to necessarily um, fear that. And, um, you know, and that's, and maybe this is a topic for another day when we talk about PRP and interventions, but um, just because I see it here doesn't mean I want to like do anything intervention wise. It doesn't mean you need to inject it. It doesn't mean it's going to it's going to rupture on you on your next run. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, but it does establish a bit of a baseline so we can know because what we don't want to see is if symptoms are getting worse and there's progression of changes you know, in, a, in, a, in a negative direction. So, um, you know, establishing why we're doing the imaging modality, what the imaging limitations are as well is super important for sure. And um, yeah, that's a, definitely a good topic for another day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. That's uh really important to keep in, to keep it all in mind, the big picture. And, um, yeah, that was a lot to, uh, unpack. So I think let's, uh, let's call it maybe good there. And we'll, um, we'll see where we could dive into maybe a little bit more for a future topic. And I, I know we have some guests that we are both excited about talking with, uh, kind of related to tendinopathy stuff in the, in the near future. So kind of pick their brains about, um, about some of the specifics as well. Um, and I, I think even though the treatments aren't super exciting, this is like, I love working with tendons and um, I get excited even when it's just like heavy, slow resistance training and like teaching people how to do that. So, um, uh, but I realize that it's not the most exciting rehab usually for people, but um, yeah, uh, that was great. Thanks. And I'm excited to carry on some uh, future conversations. Yeah. Awesome. 